0: Fresh
1: Brains. Hi, welcome back. Now, managing ICP is one of the central principles of managing almost all of our neuropatients. But how much evidence is there that we're actually helping them? In this episode, we'll briefly review some of the evidence for and against invasive ICP monitoring, and we'll also talk about one of the new alternatives brain tissue oxygenation. If you're managing patients with increased ICP, I think understanding these concepts is critical. Hope you enjoy this episode. So, Carl, I have a question for you. What were you doing last weekend? Were you on call?
0: Yeah, I was actually. How did that go? Well, it went fine. We ended up doing a washout on a guy that had a craniectomy.
1: Uh Uh-huh. Let's imagine you had your standard TBI trauma guy, you know, guy has a car accident, smashes his head, comes in. And, you know, gets admitted to the ICU, right? Uh-huh. Your standard kind of TBI. You're in the ICU. You're rounding on this patient. And I'm the ICU doctor. I'm like the neuro ICU guy. You swing by the room and I'm sitting there futzing with things. And you notice, you look up at the monitor and you see the, the ICP is like 80, 80 millimeters of mercury. <laughs> What's what, what What? are your thoughts on that?
0: Uh, I, I would look at that and say, one, is the is the thing broken? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Why are we just leaving this
1: there? <laughs> uh-huh. This is like visceral, like, oh, this doesn't look good. Right. I, I turn to you as the knowledgeable ICU doctor and I say, well, you know, I, I I agree it's high, but I don't I don't really believe that treating ICP actually affects outcomes. So I don't think it's evidence-based to say that we should treat that number right now.
0: And I would lose my mind because of Monroe <laughs> Kelly.
1: <laughs> Your head would literally explode. <laughs> Well, I mean, can you prove me wrong? Is there any actual data to say that treating an ICP will affect outcome?
0: Well, there's probably as much data as, you know, using a parachute and jumping out of a plane.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of controversy in this area. I think on the one hand, there is an extremely strong correlation between ICP an outcome. So yeah, like like you're saying with the parachute, we might not have done an actual trial of not treating ICP and seeing what happens. For all of us, it's pretty visceral, clear relationship that when someone's ICP goes out of control, that is usually associated with them dying. That
0: adds you know it's like we mentioned in our previous episodes once we started treating icps people started having increased survival it felt like and almost all of our interventions have to do with icp
1: yes so on the one hand we don't have a whole lot of data saying treating icp is an actual good idea but it just it seems like a really reasonable thing to do On the other hand, there is a lot of evidence in kind of how we do the things we do. And a lot of it's actually surprising because a lot of it actually speaks against the way that we manage ICP. To really understand this, I think it's good to kind of go through the whole history of kind of how we got here and what data there is right now in how we manage ICP. That's probably a pretty useful exercise. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So let me take you back. You've heard of Lundberg, right? Oh, yeah. So Lundberg was a really cool guy. He was the first guy to do a lot of the cranial invasive monitoring in people. Some people had done animal work before him. A lot of people had done ICP monitoring through lumbar punctures, but he started doing catheters in people's brains and applying the principles of ICP management, ICP measuring, to actual human pathologies. In 1965, he published this paper where he demonstrated for the first time ICP measurements from the brain in traumas. Before this, it was just measured through LPs. Right. He put in the standard EVD, the standard catheter that we use nowadays in people's ventricles, and he had a a series of traumas where he measured their ICP and kind of saw how their ICP changed with our interventions.
0: Huh. So, Bill, what did they do to treat that ICP?
1: Uh, well, so we're talking... Instead in this, of
0: lose their mind like I would.
1: We're talking in the <laughs> 60s right now. Right. <laughs> they had a handful of treatments for ICP at this time. Unfortunately, if you compare them to what we do nowadays, it might not exactly fit our standards. For example, they use urea infusions, which is not as bad as it sounds.
0: Was that their version of like hyperosmolar therapy?
1: Exactly. Exactly. That's that's basically their version of mannitol. Mannitol works better. Mannitol is safer. But urea actually works well, too. So they gave them hyperosmolars. They would do things like hyperventilation. They would give them steroids because they thought steroids would help TBIs at this point. I think they did that all the way through the 90s. Yeah. And then, of course, they didn't have CT at this time either. You know, the real CTs didn't become first available until kind of the mid-70s. And they weren't totally widespread in hospitals until like early 80s. So mm-hmm. how they had to diagnose intracranial pathologies, they had skull x-rays, they had pneumocephalograms. They actually did a lot of angios and looked for the displacement of vessels. Right. That's how you
0: could tell what side a hematoma
1: was. Exactly. Exactly. And then to, to confirm your suspicion, they would do exploratory burr holes. Just kind of, you know, drill around. Which I'll say.
0: So Greenberg is kind of the Bible for the neurosurgery mm-hmm. trainee. Mm-hmm. And exploratory burr holes, I think, might still be in it. It was still in it when I started residency. Really? Yeah. It was at least in the sixth edition.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Interesting.
0: And it gave you the order in which to do them.
1: Yeah. And then something that we know is actually, like, really effective, um, they, they use hypothermia still, which, again, is very effective for ICP. Unfortunately, for outcomes. Right,
0: I was about to say. That. I know hypothermia right now is quite controversial. Oh yeah,
1: have you done it with a? We have
0: done it with TBIs. Yeah, but we also acknowledge that there was that Eurotherm uh, 32 35 trial. Uh-huh. I think that's what it was. I think those were the numbers. I know it was Eurotherm some number some number. Uh-huh. <laughs> they had a negative result.
1: Yeah, I mean it does control your ICP, which is great, but the the outcome is is really the question. Right. So for example, the first patient, I think it's actually really cool, Lundberg in the 65 paper, he has the ICP tracings of the first couple patients that he put in these catheters for. And so they have this TBI patient who comes in and his baseline ICP is in the 20s. And then all of a sudden he has these plateau wave things where his ICP shoots up to between 80 and 100. And... In the paper, it describes that he starts, you know, posturing. And to me, just thinking about someone with an ICP between 80 and 100, that's just, that's crazy. Yeah, that's...
0: (laughs) To have someone with an ICP in the 80s (laughs) and then to report a, quote, good outcome,
1: quote. yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so that's the thing. After he comes in with an ICP of 80 and they do all these interventions, including, I think, a couple days of hypothermia, they say that he leaves the hospital with a good outcome.
0: So... I think in this case, I'd be really curious what the MAPs are, <laughs> or what the cerebral perfusion pressure is oh, yeah. that's, during that so, 80s.
1: So that that's another good point. So we started measuring ICP in these TBI patients. We think it's something that's associated with bad outcomes. It kind of feels like, theoretically, it should be bad. But do we have data that actually says ICP specifically is associated with bad outcomes? So there was this really nice paper that I found, um, Marmoro, 1991. So this was a review of 428 patients in this large TBI database, this like national database with a lot of TBI data. And they did this multiple regression where they tried to tease out the independent effects of different factors. They looked at things where they tried to tease out, for example, the effect of blood pressure versus ICP and those sorts of things independently. The factors that were independently associated with outcome in these TBI patients were age, so like older people did worse independently of anything else, their GCS motor score on admission, people who are present worse, do worse, that, that all makes sense, um, their, their pupil response, if you show up with blown pupils, you do worse. And then the things that we can actually change, theoretically, um, the, the proportion of the time that their systolic blood pressure was less than 80, and the proportion of the time that their ICP was above 20. And they had different thresholds they used, and 20 was about the kind of cutoff where all the really bad outcomes happened when their ICP was sustained over 20.
0: I think it's interesting that these are the factors that were singled out, and it kind of makes sense. We know from before that age and GCS are really important factors. It kind of gives you a starting point. Mm-hmm. But the two vital signs that really matter are like ICP
1: and blood pressure in this
0: paper. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I think it's important to note that it's blood pressure and ICP independent of one another and I, if I remember correctly, the blood pressure was actually more significantly correlated than the ICP was. And I think a lot of times when we're taking care of these patients, we get very focused on the ICP. Obviously, there's the, there's the cerebral perfusion pressure concept, which, it, which integrates the blood pressure in there. But I, I think something that sometimes gets kind of secondary consideration is the blood pressure. When I think in these, in these people, blood pressure is one of, the, one of the most important factors that we can modulate.
0: Well, especially when you consider that a lot of our interventions for ICP drop your
1: blood pressure. Exactly. Not ketamine. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Th- but propofol. You know, mannitol. Yes. To me personally, that speaks to, for example, the argument between hypertonic saline and mannitol. Yeah. Hypertonic saline. I like a lot better just from the hemodynamics perspective, regardless of the specific effect on ICP. But that's a whole nother discussion. (laughs) We digress. So far what we've said, we have the technology to monitor ICP now continuously at the bedside. We have some experience with that. We've shown that there's a correlation of ICP with bad outcomes. But now, you know, correlation okay, maybe those people that come in that have their heads smashed all have increased ICP, but that doesn't mean if we drop their ICP, they're gonna magically do better. Maybe the damage is already done, even if we dropped their ICP, it wouldn't change their outcome, right? So does managing ICP actually reduce mortality and increase functional outcomes? If you ask people around without even, without doing any trials, without just just our clinical experience tends to tell us, yes, it seems like if we let them ride these high ICPs, they would do bad. And if we can control them, it seems like those people do well. I think this is really quantified well in this Stein paper from 2010. It was a really cool paper they looked back at the last 150 years of published outcomes in tbi and what they did is they just looked at the mortality if you look at mortality in tbi around you know 1900s the beginning of neurosurgery mortality for tbi was around 65 percent really high these are all severe tbis we're talking about okay so you come in, your head's smashed, you're not doing well, 65% of those people are going to die. And then over the next 20, 30 years, up until around the 1930s, that's where we're starting to implement some of this early surgical intervention, improving our surgical technique. We're dropping that mortality from around 65% to 50%. That's an improvement. <laughs> it's an improvement. We're, we're slowly working our way better, but still pretty bad. And it stays around 50% up until around 1970. And then suddenly, suddenly in the 70s through the 80s, there's a huge drop from 50% mortality to like 30% mortality. Now, usually big drops like that are pretty multifactorial. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So that that's the problem. So around this time, like I said, Lundberg, that, that first paper was 65. Yeah. So around this time, ICP monitoring and interventions on ICP are starting to become more common, more widespread. You go to all the neuro ICUs around the country, people are starting to implement ICP targeted treatments and mortality is having in this time. So, imagine you're living through this in the ICU you see more than half of people are dying who come in with TBIs. We start all these newfangled. We're starting to put catheters in their brains. We're giving them weird drugs based on different parameters. And all of a sudden, most of them are actually living. Yeah. And that that's a, that's a great thing, right?
0: Well, it sounds like along the same lines as draping. Yeah, and putting hats and masks on for surgical site infections. Yeah,
1: <laughs> it's like all of a sudden, wow, we're we're figuring this out and we're yeah. saving people. Right. The problem is, like you just mentioned, there were a million other things that were happening at the same time. For example, CT just came out. Yeah, which is a huge <laughs> thing, right?
0: <laughs> a daily thing for us. Yeah.
1: <laughs> And a, a ton of other things were changing over this time. I mean, ICU care in general was being revolutionized around this time. Things like ventilatory care, the way that we put in ET tubes, our use of hypothermia, this whole exploratory hole thing, a lot of things were changing around this time. And saying all of this was caused just by monitoring and treating spikes in ICP, I think is kind of ingenuine looking at all the other things that were happening. Exactly.
0: Can't change a ton of variables and then say, well, each
1: variable independently contributed to the outcome. Exactly. So looking at the data, we know ICP correlates with bad outcome, unquestionably, 100%. But Mm -hmm. the the question is the causality. If we intervene specifically on spikes in the ICP, is that actually going to do anything? Does putting in an ICP monitor to know the minute-to-minute control of ICP... Does that help, or can we just kind of do all these other ICU treatments and do the things to control the ICP that we know are generally effective, or do we have to know exactly what the ICP is and keep the ICP under a certain number to optimize their ICP, right?
0: Do we go by clinical exam, or do we really need that number to tell us, oh, no, we're getting to 20? Yes. We better cut down.
1: Because <laughs> now we have CT. We can say if they have a hematoma, we can just scan them and see. And if they have not hematoma, let's take it out. If it looks like their ICP is increasing because of their clinical exam, we can give them some mannitol and see if we can control it that way. Do we actually need to know the number? So the first study that I saw that spoke to this was Kramer 2005. This was a really interesting study. It's hard to actually make these comparisons when you have a standard of care that everyone thinks is effective and these are life and death decisions. So we, it's really hard to randomize people to something that everyone thinks is dangerous. Right. Because
0: I, I would argue in the U.S. that ICP monitoring has become standard of care. And to not do it really exposes you to, to not, not just you know the civil liability, but complete, completely being ostracized by your peers.
1: Yes. Ar- around the time we're talking about now, which is early 2000s and through till now, in the United States... Invasive ICP monitoring is definitely the standard of care. And if you don't do it in the patients where it's indicated, that could, that's a problem. We can't, we can't randomize people to doing it. That being said, that intensity of getting behind ICP monitoring was not felt the same in all areas of the world. And so, for example, in this study in 2005, this is Kramer uh, et al., So this was in the netherlands and in the netherlands they were still a little equivocal on the use of invasive icp monitoring and so what they had were there were two regional hospitals that were set up very similarly and one hospital just happened to really be getting behind icp monitoring and one of them didn't and so if you had for example a car crash severe tbi the only reason you would be taken to one hospital versus the other is where that car crash physically happened, which one you happen to be closest to. So it's sort of pseudo-random based on where you, which hospital you went to.
0: Right, and we don't know about any sort of bias. Like there's a freeway next to one, <laughs> and then the other one's in like a yeah. you know, quiet – Town. <laughs> yes,
1: we're, we're assuming that the streets are, you know, are relatively equivalently safe. So they had 940 patients that they analyzed. Most of the people who went to the ICP hospital got invasive ICP monitoring. Most of the people who went to the non-ICP hospital didn't. And if you look at the Glasgow outcome score of both of those groups, they were equivalent. They even looked at only the people who specifically got monitoring or didn't get monitoring at those hospitals. Still, equivalent outcomes. And then they they added in, they adjusted it for different factors, you know, severity of illness, all those things, still absolutely no difference in putting in an invasive ICP monitor. So not randomized, but this study is suggesting that, you know, maybe putting in these invasive ICP monitors and closely adjusting ICP isn't any better than just kind of doing our standard neuro ICU care on people and treating people based on other things, like you said, clinical exam and other, other metrics that we have. So not the highest quality evidence available, right? We need a randomized controlled trial to really decide this, right? Yeah. If only we had a randomized controlled trial that showed us ICP monitoring is not necessary. Are there? Uh, well, so... <laughs> There's the well-known trial. Um, there was actually a small trial before the best trip trial that I found on um, Caustic 2011. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's right. So this had 61 patients. They randomized them to ICP monitoring versus clinical exam, found no difference. And then the larger RCT that everyone talks about is the best trip trial, chestnut 2012. This was in South America. And again, in South America, it is not taken as standard of care that they need invasive ICP monitoring. The, it was still equivocal in whether it's going to help. And so the, the South Americans were okay saying, we're going to randomize people to getting it or not getting it because we're really not sure. We're not so confident in ICP, invasive ICP monitoring. And so they did. They randomized people to either invasive ICP monitoring and treating them based on the ICP number, or just doing the kind of standard cares, getting scheduled CTs after a day, after two days, I think it was, and then treating them based on clinical exam. One important thing to note that some people kind of confuse: we're not randomizing, not treating ICP. We're treating ICP right. because that that seems like it's probably effective. We don't, again, we don't have you know randomized evidence to support that. It seems like treating ICP is probably a good idea. We're, we're, we're randomizing people to is do we need to have an invasive monitor minute to minute where we know exactly what their ICP is? Or can we just go by an exam and a CT and something kind of less invasive and maybe less specific to their, what their ICP is right now? But does that really matter? It's trying to
0: answer the question, is ICP the main thing that we need to worry about here, like the actual number, or are we wor- more worried about the effects that ICP might be having on the patient?
1: Sure, if we have a good clinical exam, is that a good enough measure? And they found no difference in mortality or functional status after six months. Their primary outcome was this whole like kind of complex composite score, which I, is a little complex. But uh, <laughs> what they were trying to say was basically, if you look at it in this really complicated way, it doesn't look like there's any differences we're seeing in these people. And if you, if you want to boil it down to something simple, their simple functional outcome differences, their simple mortality differences were not different. Any way you look at it, it seems like it doesn't look like invasive ICP monitoring really helped these patients. Right some criticisms of the paper if you're, if you're trying to a- apply this data to the United States. So there were some differences, for example, their pre-hospital care is not exactly the same as ours. These people on average took a lot longer to get to the hospital. They're a lot further away from big hospital centers. If you look at the ranges on how long it took them to get to the hospital, some of them actually took a really long time to get to the hospital. Um, in general, their presenting severities were on average higher than ours. Mm. So these are very severe TBIs who have a little longer to get to the hospital. So they're already on the edge of... You could argue, for example, maybe a lot of the damage is already done in these patients.
0: That might be an important determinant of outcome there. We actually get a lot of people from far away, too, at a tertiary care center. Or yeah. I guess, I don't know if you'd call us quaternary care center at this point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, But those people do take sometimes hours to get here from, say, North Michigan or something.
1: For, for sure. And I mean, for example, like Chestnut, you know, he's in he's in Seattle. And Seattle's the trauma center for the entire Pacific Northwest. They get people that are, you know, helicoptered in from a long way away.
0: Right. So we do see people that have a significant delay in their presentation.
1: Yeah. You're never going to have a study that's exactly the conditions that you're trying to apply it to. But this was a pretty well done study.
0: Right. And this seems to be a pretty good surrogate for our population. Yeah. Even though you would expect possibly worse outcomes based on that. I I wouldn't argue that you could not apply this data to your practice.
1: Yes. So what this trial says to me is basically, okay, so if you have a clinical exam and you can do some CTs and you do the standard ICU stuff and the standard neuro stuff, and you just give them some mannitol whenever you feel like it, putting in a bolt Doesn't seem to help you much, which in general is kind of where we've tended towards in our clinical practice of if you actually have an exam you can follow, you don't need a bolt. Exactly. So that was the only randomized trial that we have. There are a lot of other outcome studies. There are a lot of other correlational studies looking at observational data where they try to correlate out different factors. They have propensity score matched studies and stuff like that, that try to get as good of an observational study as we can. There was a meta-analysis of 18 of these studies um, in 2016 by Shen. And in this meta-analysis, it looks like people do better who got invasive ICP monitoring. So you can still say, well, I mean, if you look at the data on bulk, it still seems to suggest that invasive ICP monitoring people do better. But for example, if we like boil into one of these studies, Agarwal 2015, there's a couple thousand trauma patients that come in and they're just looking at what happened. Some of them got bolts, some of them don't. And the ones that got bolts do better, but they weren't randomized, right? So right. put yourself in the shoes of that neurosurgeon, <laughs> right? This patient comes in, let's say it's, you know, it's all propensity score matched. They're an equivalent patients. Why would you decide to put a bolt in one guy and not in the other?
0: Uh, I think the answer is pretty clear. Yeah, (laughs) We'll put the bolt in. We'll surgically intervene on patients that we believe are going to be helped by that intervention. People
1: that we still think we can help.
0: But those that we believe, you know, they're morbid on arrival. They're multi-system trauma. Nothing's going to help them. Then those are the people that we don't place the bolt in.
1: Yeah. So if you're saying, well, they're totally matched, I mean, the decision of the neurosurgeon who's treating is usually based on their gestalt of, is this person going to do good or not do good? Even if you try and factor that out, that effect's still going to be there. So saying the people who got bolts did better, well, that just means that neurosurgeons are still okay at predicting who's going to do good.
0: (laughs) Right. Which we have already established is not the case.
1: Yeah, but I mean, a little (laughs) bit, a little bit. So, okay. So like we were saying... Directly managing ICP does not seem to affect outcome that much. We know that people with, with spikes in ICP do poorly, but if we really, really tightly control ICP, that doesn't seem to make them do any better.
0: Well, at least the number. The num. Treating yeah. ICP like clinical changes seems yes. to yes. maybe yes. do something. But. Yes.
1: <laughs> tightly controlling that ICP pressure number doesn't seem to change the outcome. So why are we managing ICP in the first place? You know, this is Taking us back to med school. That was a long time ago. Long time ago. (laughs) So dig back deep. We're managing the pressure inside the skull because we have this concept of cerebral perfusion pressure, right? Right. We want to make sure the pressure in the skull is not so high. Our arterial pressure is actually able to push through that to perfuse the brain. So we have this pressure gradient that we want to create perfusing the brain. Okay. So that's important because it's pressure. But Pressure is not what we actually care about, right? We care about flow. We want perfusion mm-hmm. of the brain. We don't, we don't necessarily want a, just a driving pressure. And why do we want perfusion of the brain? We want perfusion of the brain because we need oxygen delivery to parts of the brain, right? right.
0: It's this anaerobic metabolism that we believe is the source of all these problems.
1: Yes, yes, because the, we want to p- avoid this brain ischemia. And so the thing we're really trying to avoid is brain ischemia, right? That's yes. why we're measuring ICP. And that's a big chain of logic, right? If that's what we're going after, if we're going after brain ischemia, why don't we just measure brain ischemia? Can we do that? Well, so there's there's a couple different ways <laughs> you can go at it. So first of all, there's this pivotal paper in Lancet by Graham and Hume Adams in 1971, where apparently reading through the literature, it seems like before this, the, this kind of secondary injury, the role of ischemia in TBI wasn't really fully recognized. And so they did these pathologic exams of brains where people died from TBIs and they did sections and they looked at them and they found that in 21 out of 38 of the brains, they had gross ischemia going on in the brain where they wouldn't otherwise expect ischemia to be happening. And
0: that's a really important development, right? Yeah. I could see, you know, with these high mortalities, wouldn't you figure that a lot of these people would figure? Well, this is all just a primary injury. You exactly. can't do anything about a primary injury.
1: Exactly. And so this concept of secondary injury was huge. Now there's something that we can actually do. We can actually intervene and prevent further damage. Because if it all if it all happened in the accident, there's nothing for us to do, right? Right. So so controlling ischemia post injury suddenly became a thing. And there's there are various different ways that we, we can measure ischemia. Um, jugular venous 0 2 sat was one of the common ways in the 80s. It's something that can work. It has a lot of issues. I don't wanna to go totally into that. The thing that I wanna talk about is brain tissue PO2, or the, the brand name of which is Lycox, which is, that's how I'm gonna to refer to it because that's easier. The Lycox that we use nowadays uses a Clark electrode that was developed in the 60s. And the first demonstrations that I could find of using it actually in TBI patients was von Santbrick in 1996. They put these Lycox probes in people with TBIs. They had 22 severe TBI patients that were coming in. They were getting ICP monitors. They were all getting bolts already. They wanted to show that it was safe and feasible to actually do this, and that the, the values actually seemed to correlate with something. They put ICP monitors and PBO2 monitors in all these patients. The patients that all had low PBO2 values Almost all of them died within 24 hours. You have low PBO2s. That was really correlated with early mortality. That's a pretty strong uh, result right there. Yeah. (laughs) There was one patient that it didn't correlate in, one patient where they had really, really low PBO2 values, and the patient ended up actually doing okay. You know why?
0: I'm guessing it has to do with what the company tells us when they train us on this device (laughs) about where
1: to put it. (laughs) Exactly. So this one patient, in this study, they just put all of the Lycoxes in the right frontal area for whatever reason. And when they did the scan on this patient, this patient had a right frontal contusion. So they stuck the Lycox straight into the area of pathology. So that area was ischemic because that was where the area was, but it wasn't global brain ischemia. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah. So like, like you said, clinically nowadays, I've heard arguments of putting it in different locations of the brain.
0: I've heard those too, but there's no real good guiding data for that. Yeah. Some people will say put it in the normal area of the brain. That kind of goes along the idea of global oxygenation being sure. constant, which was shown with that jugular venous bulb oxygen saturation. That's not really a great measure. Yeah. And then you also have the other argument that says, well, you should place it in a penumbra around the injury. Yeah. Tissue that is most likely to be lost in a secondary injury. Yeah.
1: What you definitely don't want to do is put it in dead or already super ischemic brain, because that's brain that you already know is ischemic. You want to see if there's areas you can save. It's not indicative of your outcome, and it could lead you to do some bad things to the patient. Yeah. Yeah. So in this first study in 1996, so they showed, okay, these PbO2 values are actually correlating pretty significantly with bad outcomes. And then a really, really cool thing is they correlated the PbO2 values with the ICP and they did not correlate. The R value was like 0.1, really, really low.
0: Right. And that's super interesting Mm -hmm. because it kind of tells you that all these steps in this metabolic cascade, Mm -hmm. that might be a much bigger separation than we think.
1: Yes. Yes. And maybe maybe we're measuring the wrong thing, basically. Yeah. This was 96. This was followed uh, a paper in 1998 by Vladka where they did another 43 patients and they showed that patients who had drops in their PBO2 correlated with their mortality. Further evidence that the brain PBO2 seems to be pretty tightly correlated with bad outcomes. Again, just like with ICP, this is all observational correlational data. We need some better experimental evidence, right? We'd like to show some causation at some point. Exactly. So, to do that, we need a randomized trial. So, that brings us to Boost 2, 2017. So, this was a phase two randomized trial, and that's important. That means it wasn't designed to actually be the definitive answer. It was designed to show that this is a trial that we could possibly do. So the main outcome was to show that we can intervene and experimentally manipulate PBO2 in these TBI patients. It wasn't supposed to be looking at outcome.
0: Right, you're saying, is this something that we can control?
1: Yes, exactly. And then if we can control it, then we can run the huge outcome trial. So these were all TBIs, they all got ICP monitors, and they all got Lycoxes. And they were randomized to either taping over the Lycox machine or not and then doing interventions. If you could see the Lycox value, you would do interventions on the PBO2.
0: Wait, did they tape up the ICP?
1: No, no. The ICP was able to be seen in all of the conditions. The Lycox had had like a piece of paper taped over it. I was actually at Seattle when they were doing Boost True and they literally had like a piece of cardboard taped over the, the wow. Lycox machine. <laughs> So I'm sure you're familiar with ICP interventions, right? Like hyperosmolars, changing the position of the bed, etc. Exactly. hyperventilating. So because they wanted to do interventions specifically for PBO2, they had all sorts of specific PBO2 interventions. So we're thinking, how do we increase the oxygenation of the brain? So a lot of them were interventions, for example, for respiratory parameters, like right. increase your FiO2 or change your PCO2 to try and improve your brain flow. Right, get an ABG, figure out what might be going on. Or uh, transfuse them some red cells to increase their oxygen-carrying oh, capacity. Yeah. Exactly. So they would do these specific PBO2 interventions. And the whole point of the trial was if we do these interventions, if we change up their vent settings, if we transfuse them blood, does that actually improve their PBO2 values?
0: Did this include ICP interventions too?
1: Yes. ICP interventions Mm -hmm. independently, Mm -hmm. they would do ICP interventions in all of them. And then in addition, if the PBO2 was still low, even if the ICP was low, they would also do these PBO2 interventions, vents and transfusions and stuff. So it turns out for their primary outcome, they were able to control the PBO2. They showed that they reduced the duration of cerebral hypoxia by 66%. In the group where we weren't intervening, they had Lycoxes in them anyway, and they looked back, and forty-four percent of the time they were registering in the hypoxic values for Lycox. Whereas when they intervened, they dropped that down to 15%. So it says, okay, these interventions, these vent interventions that we're doing, actually can improve cerebral oxygenation, right?
0: Right. But along the lines of ICP interventions, you know, we know we can control the ICP. Exactly. But, but doesn't it doesn't matter. matter.
1: So that's the that is the super cool thing about this study. This wasn't the primary outcome, but they looked at mortality. And outcome scores, and they were dramatically different. The mortality in the ICP only group was 34%, and in the PBO2 group was 25%. So it dropped like 10%. That's quite a bit. And the amazing thing is, you look at the outcome and you look at the outcome categories, and like we were saying before, it wasn't just that we reduced mortality, and all of those people that would have died suddenly become permanent vegetative state. No. Everyone got better. So every single category went down where the best outcome score, fully independently functional, went from, in the ICP-only group, 6% to 13% in the PBO2 group.
0: And this is one of the first studies that really had an outcome
1: like this. Yeah, where we're actually improving the proportion of people who have really good outcomes, too. A lot of these effects on outcome were not significant, again, because it wasn't powered to show this. Right but the effect size, the absolute difference in these numbers was really big. So we don't know for sure if this is a random effect,
0: but- But it's promising enough that you better believe that people are excited about Boost 3.
1: Exactly, very promising. So Boost 3 is currently running right now. So unfortunately we can't tell outcomes there, but I am super excited about it.
0: I mean, this is one of the most important interventions we've come up with recently.
1: Yeah, if Boost 3 finishes and shows a significant decrease in mortality, increase in functional outcome with Lycox. Do you think that's going to be the standard of care now? I mean, that's a better outcome than decompressive hemi Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> of course,
0: it's going to be standard
1: of care. Yeah, I, I agree. So it, it's cool times. We will await the outcomes in Boost 3. That's going to be awesome.
0: Yeah, really looking forward to that
1: so those are my thoughts on managing icp and pbo2 in severe tbis if you guys out there have any thoughts any criticisms comments this is usually a pretty controversial topic when i talk about with people so please feel free to send in your comments Um, Again, go to the website, freshbrains.wtf. My email is bill at freshbrains.wtf.
0: And I'm Carl at freshbrains.wtf.
1: With a K. Carl with a K. The right way. (laughs) The right way. (laughs) Um, I'm on Twitter at BillGrossMD.
0: I couldn't look it up fast enough because I knew it was coming.
1: (laughs) Carl still needs to get on Twitter. Uh, Otherwise, we will see you next time. That wasn't the button. he had a weird weekend. We'll we'll leave it at that. <clears throat> Speaking of weekend, calm down, calm <laughs> Carl, Calm down. <laughs>